fixate afresh on the glory of Christ, to put our faith in Him and to obey Him as our Lord, enjoying all of the good benefits that He gives to us, but that our worship would center on Jesus and Him alone. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part six, the final segment of Jesus Begins His Ministry, a study of Matthew's gospel from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor's text for today is verses 23 through 25, which are the closing of chapter four. As we approach the ending portions of this series, Pastor Paul points to Christ as king and how he instructs us to abide in his kingdom. With that said, Jesus demands his followers develop an understanding of the kind of kingdom living required of them as citizens in his kingdom. These behaviors will be described more fully in Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 12, where the Beatitudes are enumerated. These are eight blessings that attend followers of Christ living out kingdom principles here in this life. And although in our flesh success is impossible, they show us how we can live under spirit power. Here's part six of Jesus Begins His Ministry. In our sinful flesh, we are so prone to avoid submission to Jesus, repentance from sin, accepting in all humility that we have nowhere to go but fleeing to Christ. The inclinations of the flesh will compel us to do anything but cast ourselves upon Christ. Which is why when you speak to somebody who is not in Christ and you ask them the question, what do you make of the Lord Jesus? So often the answer is, I believe he was a good teacher. That tells you as much about their heart as it does about their perception of Christ. The heart does not want to submit to the Lordship of Christ. The heart sees it. The heart knows it. It is bound up in us to recognize who Jesus is. And yet in our flesh, we do not want to embrace that fact. And thus, a seemingly acceptable answer is to credit him with something, not the Lordship. I'll credit him with being a good teacher. I have lost count of how many times I've spoken to somebody who is not a Christian and asked them, what do you make of this man? And the answer is, I do believe that he taught good things. You can read through the Sermon on the Mount and it is quite agreeable to most of humanity. Who would disagree with the golden rule? Who would disagree that we should not be angry in our hearts? The problem is... The scriptures never present Jesus as only a good teacher. The Bible never gives us that option. Jesus is never presented anywhere in the Bible as merely a good teacher. Your answer to that question is one that has not been permitted. You're not given that as an option. You have to, as so many have said, either say that he was wicked 
a man who is seeking to deceive and, and work all kinds of evil, or that he was mad, he had completely lost his mind, or that he is exactly who he said he was. They are the only options available when the Bible commends you to embrace Jesus at face value and to accept him for who he says he is. I pray every Sunday that the Lord would bring his elect to us. God, you know who you have chosen from before the foundation of the world. So bring them. You know who you have chosen for salvation from before the foundation of the world. So would you, in your grace, bring them to us this morning? Would they hear the gospel? And in hearing, would today be the day of salvation? Would their ears hear in their hearts, their dead hearts, be quickened unto life? If you're here today, it's not an accident. God decreed that you would be here this morning. These verses are not merely summary verses. They're not verses that are incidental, but actually, as you properly consider Matthew's summary, projecting forward, telling us what is about to come so that we are best positioned to make the right response. As you think of these verses, you see that they form something of a pivot within the gospel narrative. They are an implicit exhortation for you to hit pause right now and consider what have you done with Jesus? If you have been with us every single week since we began, or you are just here for the first time today, either way, the verses are asking the same question of you to reflect upon your response to this man. Have you yet to acknowledge who he truly is? Have you in some way affirmed his teaching and yet not embraced him? Have you in some way stepped aside around the call to repentance and you find yourself living what seems to be a perfectly acceptable life and yet your sins are not yet forgiven. I pray that you would see the Lordship of Christ through his teaching and his preaching ministry and you would understand that before you can accept his ethic, you must embrace his lordship. Before you can submit to his teaching, you must repent of your sin and cast yourself upon the Savior. That's the nature of his ministry. We move now to look at the response that Matthew records for us in verse 24 and 25. And we see that his fame spread throughout the whole area. His fame spread so that they brought to him all of the sick, those with diseases and pains and seizures, the paralytics. Verse 25, great crowds followed him. There's a sense in which what Matthew is doing here is narrating for us, explaining to us how Jesus' ministry developed. He began emerging as an individual. He submitted himself to the baptism of John. 
And then very quickly afterwards, he began to preach and he called the first disciples. When Jesus did that, he would never be alone again all the way up until the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus will now constantly have people with him. He has this this inner circle of disciples around him all the time. And then in the next passage, our text today, we see how that inner circle gets built upon, augmented. Now there's a great crowd following him. So with Jesus at the center, the disciples come around him and now a great crowd. And, And Matthew, in one sense, is simply explaining to us how we got to Jesus' ministry of many, many people around him. But there's more to it than that. This summary statement has many curious elements to it. Consider, first of all, the fact that Matthew says his fame spread. The people are coming to him on the basis of a report, on the basis of his fame. Meaning to his original read is exactly what it means to us. These people have come because he has risen in some strange way to the status of something of a celebrity. They are there not first and foremost because they have a personal relationship with this man, but because in some way he is now famous. Consider also the juxtaposition between the specificity of Christ's ministry. Matthew labors the details. He goes to great lengths to tell us of these various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, the paralytics. He's giving us in high definition the works of Jesus. And that sits out of balance with a lack of any mention of the names of those that came. Matthew simply labels them in a generic way as the great crowd. There's no names mentioned. We don't get to see their faces. They just blur in contrast to the sicknesses that they bring. And then thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, notice the asymmetry between verse 23 and 24 through 25. Matthew says Jesus' ministry was a threefold ministry. He was teaching, he was proclaiming, and he was healing. Now, if the teaching and the proclaiming are of the same essence, the same substance, we have an emphasis on the words. Jesus was teaching and proclaiming. And he was healing. So Matthew is laboring this aspect of Jesus' ministry, and yet the response in verse 24 only highlights the healing. There is no recorded response here to the words that Jesus spoke. It would seem that they are only coming for his healing ministry. This is... What John, in his gospel, develops at length, the notion of many crowds seeing something they like about Jesus, affirming something that they find pleasing about Christ, and yet not quite affirming Christ. They're coming to Jesus because he has something good to give them. 
they're not coming to Jesus because he is good. John develops this theme in his gospel at length. In John's gospel, there are growing crowds throughout the narrative. And he even goes so far as to say the crowds believed in the name of the Son of God. But we're told in the very next verse, yet Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. That's the same verb. We miss it in our English Bible. They believed in him. He did not believe in them. Or they entrusted themselves to him. He did not entrust himself to them. Meaning Jesus knew what kind of faith they had, and it was not the kind of faith that he was commanding. I refer to that crowd in John's gospel as the unbelieving believers. Or you can say the believing unbelievers. However you phrase it, the point is they are believing upon Jesus in a way that he is not demanding to be believed upon. He commands you to come to him because he is the savior, the son of God, and in Matthew's gospel, very emphatically, the king. And he gives many good things. And we praise God for the good things that we receive from Christ. But that ultimately is not the reason for our faith in him, our allegiance to him. Jesus compels us to look at him and come to him because of his glory, not because of some perceived benefit. I remember when I was an unbeliever, having explored the claims of Christianity for nearly a year, the night prior to my final exams in university, the thought occurred to me, I could pray tonight. I could tell God that I repent of my sin. I could tell him that I want to follow his son. And I could ask for a blessing. Our exams were such that there was no equity carried over. Our final exams, you had zero in the bank. Your previous year's exams, all they did was get you into your next year of school, and so everything rested on these finals. It was very conceivable that I would go in and fail those exams and not get a degree, and so I was terrified. And I knew enough about the Christian faith. I had explored it for nearly a year, and, and I'd learned through experience what the Proverbs tell us, that the way of the transgressor is hard. I knew that. And so the thought came to me the night before these exams were about to begin. I thought I could just pray now. I could become a Christian tonight. And I knew that in being a Christian, I would have access to God. I could then, then I could pray and ask for a, a blessing. I knew enough to know that I had no part asking for a blessing from God if I was not in Christ. I knew I had no place in doing that, but I thought to myself, I could do that tonight and ask that God in some way, as a newborn believer, would get me through this week. And I didn't. I went to sleep and I sat those exams as an unbeliever and I'm grateful that I did because I fear that if I had prayed that night with the motives in my heart, that my religion would have been fake. 
I would have come to Jesus for the good that he gives and not because he is good. I would have come to Jesus because of some perceived benefit and not because I had a love for him. And it's important for us to think about the response of the crowds towards Jesus because so often that is our way. So often, even as believers, we can get wrapped up in all the good things that the Lord gives to us and lose sight of Christ as our ultimate good. We read from Isaiah earlier this morning. We read one portion of Isaiah that depicts the coming kingdom. As you look at the miracles of Jesus in the gospel, every single time we are to understand those miracles as a window into the coming kingdom. They validate his ministry. The miracles substantiate the claims that he is making. At the same time, they open up for us a window into the kingdom that is to come. So Jesus unstops the ears of the deaf and he opens the eyes of the blind. And that's exactly what Isaiah said will be the norm when the kingdom comes. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one that will bring that kingdom. The danger is that we focus on such glorious realities that we lose sight of Christ. That we are fixated on the good things that he gives us, the good things that are to come And that our hearts even start to worship those ideas more than they worship the king who brings them. What's fascinating about the sermon is that it begins directed to his disciples. Chapter 5, verse 1, this sermon begins given to his disciples. But you can't miss the fact that as you keep reading, it starts to become ever so more evangelistic. Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount by speaking of the two roads, the two paths that you can choose from. He talks about the tree and its fruit and it bearing bad fruit or good fruit. And then he says, there is a house that is built upon the rock that does not disappear in the flood. It's a very evangelistic ending to the sermon. And I think the most reasonable explanation as to why the sermon does that is because as Jesus was teaching his disciples a kingdom ethic, the crowd started to gather. They start to come, they hear this teaching, and they want to hear more, and so they start to gather, and Jesus, knowing that now he has a much greater crowd than which he began with, ends his sermon speaking to those who had not yet come into the kingdom and saying, you have a choice to make. This is the response that you have to make. After the sermon... There are a series of miracles. The teaching block of Jesus, five through nine, is his words, the sermon, and then a series of miracles. And it's curious to look at how Matthew has arranged those miracles so in to teach us how we should think about the ministry of Christ. He records for us three miracles, and then three miracles, and then three miracles. There are nine in total towards the end of this first teaching block. Three, three, and three interspersed between each set is a call from Jesus to follow him. He gives three miracles and then he says, let the dead bury their own dead, you need to follow me. He gives three more miracles and then he interacts with Matthew the tax collector and he says, follow me. And then three more miracles. 
So this summary statement here is intended again to project forward to inform us of what is coming. And we dare not fixate on his miracles to the extent that we lose sight of him. But rather we understand implicitly what Matthew is teaching us there as he gives us these miracles and then a call to follow Jesus. And then he gives us the miracles and then a call to follow Jesus. He is saying you cannot have access to these good things apart from Christ. And your discipleship needs to be centered on the person of Christ and not his works. You come to Jesus because you find him to be worthy. You find him to be glorious and you find him to be beautiful. Otherwise, you don't come to Jesus. If you come to Jesus on other terms, if your faith is wrapped up merely in the benefits that he gives and not an adoration of him, then the last words that Jesus speaks in the sermon are directed towards you. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and I will say to you, I never knew you. These summary verses show us of Jesus' nature and the response. And our responsibility is to fixate afresh on the glory of Christ, to put our faith in him and to obey him as our Lord, enjoying all of the good benefits that he gives to us, but that our worship would center on Jesus and him alone. Our Father, we love you and we give you thanks for every detail that you caused Matthew to write in the gospel. Even in these summary verses, we would be so prone to pass over them and to think there is nothing here to instruct our hearts. But as we observe the teaching preaching, healing ministry of Christ, we understand there is an exhortation for us to fix our focus on him, to heed his message of repentance from sin and faith in him. That is the only way by which we might obey his sermon. Father, forbid us to embrace Jesus' teaching and yet not embrace him. And as we see the response of the crowds coming because of his fame, seemingly having nothing of a personal relationship with him, we pray that you would forbid us to set our eyes on the good things that he gives and not on him. May our worship be founded in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we enjoy all of his benefits, as we give you thanks for all of the benefits of salvation, may our worship be centered on him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Pastor Paul has emphasized that although many say they embrace the moral value of what Jesus taught, there is danger in embracing kingdom ethics and not the person of Christ. It is Christ who saved us, a salvation that provides the spirit of God's indwelling power. Without that, We can embrace ethics all of our days, but fail to obtain eternal life. The gift of eternal life comes by faith in Christ alone, a gift and not of our own power. Soon, Christ, in Matthew's narrative, would separate himself from crowds and teach his disciples, giving himself to preparing these men how to live after his soon coming death. And although doubts and confusion initially arose among the disciples after Christ's death and resurrection, 
they would soon receive His Spirit so they could live Spirit-empowered lives to go out as salt and light in a sinful and hopeless world. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you'd like to learn more about Jesus Christ, come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org, timelesstruthtoday.org. Select Broadcasts, and there you'll find more of Pastor's sermons free for the listening. Hope you'll join us tomorrow, part one, a new short series called Let Us Die with Jesus, a study in John's Gospel, chapter 11, with Pastor Paul Twiss. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.